Hello, and welcome to Conversations About Arts, Humanities and Health, a podcast series all about meaningful dialogue and connections between humanities and medicine. On the 26th of May 2021, the co-organisers of this project, Dr Dieter de Klerk and Professor Ian Sabro, had a conversation in front of a live audience with Dr Chris Millard from the University of Sheffield. In today's episode, you will hear an edited recording of this live online event. You will hear Dieter and Ian speaking with Chris about the challenges and benefits of interdisciplinary research, the history of particular medical labels, and the question of value in the humanities. That's all from me. Over to Dieter, Ian and Chris. Hello, everyone. Uh, Welcome to our third conversation about arts, humanities and health, and especially welcome to Dr. Chris Miller from the University of Sheffield for joining us today for our conversation. I'm Dr. Dieter de Klerk. I'm a lecturer in film and media studies at the University of Kent. And together with my colleague Ian from Sheffield, we host this series you know, where we try to think about how the arts and humanities and medicine can meaningfully interact. And you know, we're very, very grateful, Chris, that you can be here with us today and talk more about the challenges and benefits of interdisciplinary research, uh, your own interdisciplinary collaboration with Ian and the notion of experience and what it means in different contexts of healthcare, which has been central to your work. And I will hand over to Ian. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to introduce uh, my friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Chris Millard. So Chris is a lecturer in the history of medicine and medical humanities at the University of Sheffield. Um, and his particular interests in are a 20th century mental health, suicide and self-harm, mental health policy and history of emotions. It's been a huge privilege and pleasure for me to collaborate with Chris, who's taught me a great deal about both interdisciplinarity, historical methods and historical based research. And we've I've been very privileged to work with him and learn a great deal from him doing this. Uh, So it's a delight to talk to him today because I think we're going to be able to cover a lot of the ground that we're very interested in, which is what is interdisciplinarity? What is the space that we work in? How do we do it? And how do we, what does it mean to actually do these kinds of studies and this kind of work together? Um, So Chris, obviously this is really about you and your journey. So can you start by telling us a bit about yourself and and your connection as you perceive it to, to our theme? And so I, thinking about my journey, I am very much trained as an historian. I, I spent my undergraduate, my master's, and even my PhD in history departments. But from sort of my master's onwards, it was the history of psychiatry. And that's back then, medical humanities wasn't really a phrase I was familiar with, wasn't a phrase that I used. It was definitely the history of medicine and the history of psychiatry. And that certainly had as I understood it then, roots going back at least to the 1960s. Uh, there was a sort, of, a sort of tradition of the history of psychiatry that I was involved in. And as you said, you know, looking at the history of, of self-harm and, and suicide and then mental health policy, this, I was very securely, as I saw it, ensconced in a sort of history of psychiatry. And I'm, I'm so interested in how healthcare, including psychiatric healthcare, but all kinds of healthcare, deals with human beings, deals not only with human experiences, but deals with what categories we might use to describe humans and to describe their experiences and also to to describe their behaviours and what the consequences of those categories are. So either diagnoses or disease concepts, what happens to people, to human beings, when they are described in certain ways with certain categories and that hits on experience. It also, I think, can give you an incredibly broad view across a lot of medicine because medicine is involved as well as with healthcare. It's involved with description, describing what is wrong with people, describing how you might help them. And, you know, I would say that, you know, really centrally, what animates me, what gets me out of bed in the morning to do sort of research is thinking about how human beings in history have been categorised and what the consequences of those categories are. That's fascinating, Chris. I was wondering if you could maybe give us a little bit of an example of, you know, such categorization. Sure, sure. So so in, in my PhD, so my, um, uh, just a, a, a sort of vague content warning, I'm not going to be discussing graphic self-harm or suicide here, but I will be talking a little bit about my research, which was on the topic of self-harm. So one of the things I thought about throughout my PhD was this idea of, of self-harm and attempted suicide and how people at hospitals described or understood people who turned up having taken an overdose of medication. And 
one of the things that became clear to me really quickly is that in an accident and emergency department, people are very concerned with physical health and fixing people quickly because it's normally quite urgent, right? And what was happening with people and who are often younger people um, and often young, young women who would come in having taken an overdose of medication, they were being sort of patched up, stomachs pumped or otherwise dealing with the medication in their system and then sort of sent home. This is in the 1950s. But this label of attempted suicide didn't seem to fit what they were doing. And and psychiatrists began to think about, well, how might we better describe this? How can we better get a handle on, on what's actually happening here? Because these people don't appear to be wanting to die. They appear to be doing something else. And actually, in the 1940s and 50s, more psychiatrists are becoming attached to accident and emergency departments as liaison psychiatrists. And mental health is coming out of the old Victorian asylums into general hospitals. And so there's more psychiatric expertise around. And so a whole load of new terms are proposed to try and describe what might be happening when people take overdoses. So uh, the word parasuicide is proposed. There's also um, a word pseudocide that's proposed and sort of falls by the wayside. People are, are having real problems trying to get it. Well, this, this, this behavior references suicide or, or, or gestures towards it, but isn't, that doesn't quite fit. And so that's where that sort of categorization really, it becomes important what you call something. Because if you call something attempted suicide, you're assuming an endpoint. And actually, these psychiatrists are saying, well, no, actually, that's not what's happening. These people are in distress and they're trying to communicate how distressed they are. And we should be very attentive and very careful to listen to what their needs actually are, rather than just dealing with people according to different descriptors that don't quite capture it. And, 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 and that involves experience and that involves the consequences of how people are described, if that makes sense. I guess the history of names and terms is also really important just from the point of view of who creates them, the intrinsic power structure of who actually has the power to create names. I mean, we we were privileged to co-supervise Grace Elliott when she worked on maternal mental distress in the 20th century. And I think that that really illustrated very clearly how the voices of women experiencing mental health issues around the time of birth of their children in perinatal mental health were really lost by power structures that prevented them from finding opportunities to speak out. Um, Do you sort of consider and see those things at play in your work? Yes. I mean, one of the things, one of the central things I think about psychiatric diagnosis is that for a proportion of cases, one of the symptoms of of being able to be described as psychiatrically ill is to not believe that one is psychiatrically ill. And so at the core of something like psychosis is that precise power differential, because somebody is saying, well, actually, no, what's happening is that there's a chip been implanted in my brain or everyone is against me. And, and that's part of the diagnosis that says, no, that's not happening. And no, in fact, this is a diagnosis of, I don't know, paranoid schizophrenia or something. And so that that struggle between the experience of the person and what the person believes is is occurring and the label that's put on them, that that's in a fundamental conflict. Now, that's, of course, not what happens in much of the rest of medicine when there is normally or, or where, there, 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 where there can be much more agreement on what is happening. But absolutely, it's not normally the people who are positioned as patients who, who choose what the diagnosis is. And especially when it's a presentation that is uncommon or hasn't been seen before or hasn't been noted in this way before, there is only one group that has the, I guess, the cultural capital, the sort of power there to give something a convincing name. But I think actually in, in the example that you raised with Grace Elliott's work is that there, there always are other names. You know, people would call it baby blues. People would have their own descriptors for what's going on for example in in sort of perinatal distress and i I also think it's really interesting to think about what the term distress is doing and distress in the history of medicine and psychiatry is sort of used as a non-descriptive descriptor something that tries to hold back a bit from imposing labels if you say something is is a manifestation of distress you're trying to keep it open you're trying to be much more open about what might be happening here and you're not calling it postpartum psychosis and you're not calling it a psychiatric illness and so i think that you're right there is a a real power structure at play but there are also ways of 
trying to resist or trying to at least keep open-ended those power relations as much as possible in ways that fundamentally involve language and how we describe what's happening. So tell us how you actually then did your PhD for those of us that aren't historians, because I think that's one of the joys of the medical humanities space is that there are so many different disciplines and we all talk a different language that sometimes separates us. Uh, and what for you did a PhD in 20th century mental health look like? And, 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 and how do you, and your conclusions that then led you on to where you are now? So one of the things that became so obvious quite quickly in collaboration with you, Ian, and this is obvious in a sort of good way that we were able to talk about it quite early on, is this focus on method and this focus on sort of what did you do? Because historians, historians don't really talk about that that much. There's, there's a whole lot of assumptions that people sort of know that you, you, you might go to an archive or you might just sort of read some books and have some thoughts and then start doing a bit of writing. And there isn't that same structured approach. There isn't that same, well, here's your method, here's your results, here's your, here's your discussion. And that can be a slightly super, superficial or frivolous observation, but it's also quite a fundamental one, I think, that, because it involves how information is structured into meaningfulness, how, how, how you get meaning out of information in, in general. And there's no one way to make information meaningful. But to sort of cycle back to your question, how did I how did I do a PhD? It was an awful lot of looking at medical journal articles. And one of the great things about medical journal articles is that they, they tend to be online and they tend to be keyword searchable. And I started off with this word, parasuicide, which doesn't tend to have any other meanings and is quite specific. Unlike suicide, actually, which turns up in so many places in, in Hansard, in the record for, of, uh, of Parliament, for example, people using it metaphorically all the time, not actually to involve people actually attempting to end their lives. But parasuicide, there, there isn't that problem. And so I just I stuck that into a load of search engines, came up with oodles and oodles of medical journal articles and just sort of started reading and discussing with my supervisor and and sort of piecing things together. And it was only after about a year and a half I realized I'd have to go to the National Archives and look at, uh, for example, government records. They, they changed the law on suicide in 1961 in the UK to decriminalise it. So I went and looked at that. And there was a particular unit at the Royal Infirmary of Edinburgh that dealt with and was a real research hub for this study of, of the sort of symbolism of attempted suicide. And so I went up there and had a look in the Lothian Health Services archives at their material. But there really wasn't a structure, and it wasn't until I got into two and a half years into my PhD and I, I can remember it clearly. I was sitting in my rented house in Tooting on the sofa, and I suddenly realized, Matt, no, this is what I'm looking at. And it seemed almost in, improbable that I hadn't had a, a clear idea of what I was doing until then, until two and a half years into a PhD. But really, I was just sort of plodding on lo looking at these, at these journal articles. And that lack of structure wasn't exceptional. At least it didn't, it didn't appear so to me. I, I wasn't doing something in some kind of magical, unknown way that was so spontaneous. And collaborating, co-supervising with you has sort of taught me that you can do things in a much more structured way without losing that spontaneity and that creativity, actually. One of the things I've really learned, I used to be quite anti-structure. I used to think it would really sort of push students down a particular path or push your thought down a particular path. But what I think I've learned is that there is an incredible leeway if you do the work around the structure and you and you let the structure work for you rather than Im impose upon your thought. And I think that you can only get or I could only get that through experiencing it in a different discipline, through being between or across disciplines, because otherwise it was just invisible to me because I'd only been trained as an undergraduate, as a postgraduate and as a doctoral student in history departments. Something quite interesting that came up before with previous guests is like sometimes doing a PhD in the humanities, it seems to be quite normal that it takes you years to find out exactly what you're doing, which I think is something interesting. And I, I kind of want to build on this, you know, thinking back about how you were talking about labels such as postnatal depression and attempted suicide or parasuicide. And it seems that these labels, they play a really important role in identifying the needs for care in the very high-pressured environments of healthcare that you've identified. And I was wondering, what do you think that as a historian, that kind of intervention that you're doing using methods from history, 
What do you feel like is, is the value of, of this to healthcare? Big question, I know. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I, and, it's a, and, it, and, and it's a really important one, especially as in funding applications in the humanities increasingly being asked precisely these kinds of questions about value and about impact and about how this will improve people's lives. And traditionally, historians haven't been so concerned explicitly with that, or they've been very content to just believe that history is an intrinsic good. And I, and I think actually part of me believes still that history is good for its own sake and history is an intrinsic good. But that's becoming less and less credible as a response, at least on sort of funding applications. You can't just say, well, I'm, I'm doing this because it, it's jolly interesting. Um, <laughs> and so I think... I think the value for history and history of the of, of sort of medicine is, I think, to show the provisionality of a lot of these categories and to show that how in actually really short spaces of time, a particular category can come as if from nowhere and suddenly become so dominant that it's almost impossible to imagine the sort of terrain without it. And I think parasuicide really became that. Parasuicide in the 1950s, no one had ever heard of it. And certainly nobody was really was really researching it particularly. And by the late 70s, it was a huge thing. And this this was a national epidemic. And we had to be really careful about over over prescribing sleeping pills and medication and, and barbiturates. And then it sort of vanished again, except in sort of medical circles. It, it, it went right out of the public consciousness again. And that's, I think, what kept drawing me back through the PhD process. What on earth is happening here? How can this happen that between 1950 and sort of 1980, this thing comes into focus, is really important, everyone's talking about it, and then, and then it drops away again? What's going on there? Because it didn't seem intuitive that that would happen. It seems normally when people d- discover something and they, and they label it, a bit like with perfectal depression, actually, once it's discovered, it sort of stayed discovered. And, and people still talk about it, and it's still an enormous issue, and people are still devoting resources towards it. With parasuicide, it really did sort of drop out again. And I think history can, that kind of reflection, I think, enables people to, to think in a more open and in a more flexible way about categories and about experiences. And if people's experiences don't seem to quite fit, it enables there to be a bit more of a space for that and to say, well, maybe this is developing into something else or maybe we need new and better categories. It stops you sort of clinging to the category and saying, well, no, this is this is what the phenomenon is and I'm going to keep labelling it like this. It gives you that sense that things are in states of flux that we can't we can't stop them. And, and it gives us that openness and it gives us that reflection. And that's a very woolly answer, actually. That's a very woolly answer to a big question because it doesn't talk about how that improves clinical practice, for example. And that's a flaw, I think, with, I guess, how, I, how I've answered the question. But it is what I believe. And I think sometimes I get, I struggle sometimes with this question of value, because I'm not sure it should be the role of historians or people in the humanities to improve medical practice, because I don't think we always have the expertise to do so, actually. And I think disciplines and disciplinary boundaries can be useful. They exist for a reason, and the, the, the way to, to, to cross them has loads of advantages, but it also has costs. And I do think that we should also focus on the fact that there are costs to operating overall between disciplines, because disciplines work. And it's not that they, that they, that they always work or that, or, or that we should never rethink them, but certainly that they, they, they have power, they work, they are, they are effective. And yet, interestingly, you've changed my practice and you've changed the things that I do and that I teach um, because of some of the projects that we've done together, that sense of discovering the assumptions that we make that lead to inequities in care, injustice in our practice, injustice in care for ourselves, the opportunity to review um, individual experiences of patients or doctors and and that sense of change over time to understand where we've come from uh, and how we set things in context with the social world around us as well as the policy world to see where we come from and therefore to reveal the blind spots and the assumptions that we've made. And so it's quite fascinating for me that at one level you're working within your discipline and you're not necessarily seeking to change medicine, yet the work that you and I have 
done together has certainly changed me and will and changed the students that we've worked with and may change little bits of medicine. I'm very grateful that you think that. You know, I think as well, you know, working our working relationship has has absolutely changed me in a load of ways that are not actually that that interesting but it's made me much more structured and much more accepting actually and and accepting of and thoughtful about the value of particular structures and how they work but i would also say that if i'd come into our collaboration intending to change your clinical practice it would absolutely not have worked and i think part of this is almost the sort of collaborations have to work first and then they will change things. And I think one of the problems with, for example, applying for funding to do a collaboration, you know, we were privileged enough not to have to apply for funding to, to do our collaboration together. But if we had, I would have been stumped as to what to put on the form where it says, you know, how are you going to improve clinical practice? I don't think either of us knew or could have known. And I think that's one of the real difficulties sometimes with the, with the boxes that are put on forms and the categories that we work with because they require you sort of to know in advance or to aim in advance at change. And I think one of the most profound ways to get that change is to allow the collaboration to go the way it should go without thinking necessarily about what the end objective is. You don't want to instrumentalize collaboration because that then stops it working, I think, at least potentially. Could you put some flesh to the bones and talk about one or two of the things that that either you've done separately to me or done that we've done together and how that that's actually kind of sat within an interdisciplinary medical humanities boundary and how it works for you and and what you feel that you've got out of it and and how you and what you feel I've got out of it just reflects on those differences of the experience for us both I mean one of the one of the things I actually that I think is a really it's a really banal point but actually it spins into something hopefully more profound it's just the notion, for example, of, of authorship conventions. I remember us having a conversation about, well, who's going to be author on this? And I'm thinking, in the humanities, I would not be an author on an article coming out of a project that I'd supervised unless I'd actually written a substantial section of this stuff. Simply supervising is not part of the authorship, authorship convention in the humanities. And I remember you saying, well, actually... No, no, but this is this is the convention in the sciences. If you contribute to the design or the supervision of something, then absolutely you are entitled to be an author. That's a banal point. It's a very technical point, but it just shows the, the sort of depth of difference when you're entitled to call yourself the author of something. And I think that, that actually collaborating with you has absolutely shown, it's shown me the sort of depths of the differences between the disciplines and actually how much work and how much open-mindedness and generosity and I think you know one of the things that always strikes me about our collaborations is how willing you are to let go of some of the conventions that you were trained in in order to see where it goes in order to see what happens in order to to actually properly embrace the humanities it takes a lot of effort and a lot of work to keep doing that to keep questioning because you're trained in something and it works and you become successful. And then to let go of that in order to collaborate is actually really difficult. And I think that it requires a real, I was going to say generosity, but it's more sort of, hu- more sort of humility. And I, and, I, and I think the seniority difference between us needs to be acknowledged here, that you are a, you are a senior person, a senior professor. And, and I, when I came to Sheffield, I was a, I was a lecturer coming in and there was no necessity for you to be that willing to let go of the disciplinary conventions that were yours. And it's actually quite rare when collaborating from the humanities side in medicine to have people so willing from the medical side to say, well, okay, let's junk the way I would I would look at this. Let's see what you've got. Let's see what you want to do. And, you know, sometimes we would have discussions and you would say, well, where's the evidence? Can you evidence that? Why have you used that word? What does agency mean? Why have you done this? You know, And, and you wouldn't be shy about questioning what I was doing or some of the language that I would slip into, some, some of the slightly more jargony bits of the humanities. But it's, it's the willingness and to really practice it, to say the way I'm used to dealing with this information might not be the right way. It's very easy to say that, much more difficult to do it, to actually let it go and to let somebody else, and especially a more junior person, sort of lead the conversation. And that, I think, is, you talked about power earlier. You know, there is always a seniority 
issue. And there's all and there's actually a, a sort of prestige difference, I think, between people in the humanities studying medicine and people who are medics. There is a difference, and there is a difference in 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 the value that people generally ascribe to the work. Nobody needs to justify why they're a doctor, but there is a justification required more broadly in society about why you would study the history of psychiatry. You know, what's the use of that? What's the value of that? People might think nobody nobody would turn up and say, "What's the point of being a chess physician?" <laughs> I mean, especially blooming now. Um, but but you know, all those power differentials that are in the background need to be negotiated, need to be let go of. And I think the one thing that you might not realize that you're doing often is letting them go and letting there be a space where actually the humanities can be an equal partner in this because in society it's not equal you have to make that equal and i think that's i think that's the way that it's changed me because we've had the space to do that i think this uh, connects neatly with the first of two questions that have come through the q a and that i think at this point we could we'll bring in the first and then afterwards we'll bring in the second as well i think we can maybe drill down a little bit deeper because i think it really connects with what you were already talking about chris and ian might be willing to come in on this as well We've got a question, broadly speaking, is the medical community and medical education truly open to addressing some of the blind spots that humanities might help to reveal? And I think that connects quite neatly with the question that if medicine is the partner in power, typically in society and humanities comes in and through to some historical research, for example, points out the, the provisionality of labeling. We've talked about collaborations with, with Ian, but can we... You know, is there broadly speaking a willingness? I've certainly had collaborations that have failed. I wouldn't I wouldn't want to necessarily talk too much about them in an individual level, but I do think, especially in the history of psychiatry, there is a there is a particular strand of the history of psychiatry that's very anti. It's very combative, very hostile to psychiatry and psychiatrists, and sees very, very little legitimacy in psychiatric practice. And I think that that really brings home that there are there are battle lines drawn sometimes between what historians or what people in the humanities want to do. I, I, I can't really talk about people in the humanities. I can only talk about historians. That's my expertise, really. That power differential really comes home and, and, and historians go on the attack and psychiatrists, for example, will be massively on the defensive. And then start saying, well, actually, in my clinical experience, this doesn't happen. And the historians say, well, we're not bothered about your clinical experience. We're bothered about labelling structures more generally. And it's just a complete talking past each other because people are on the attack and on the defensive because of that power differential. And so going back to the question, I think there can be real resistance to reflecting upon blind spots because it can feel like an attack. And I think it's up to the people who are trying to point out these gaps to maybe try and understand how that feels, <laughs> to have somebody who's not in your discipline come and say, I don't think you're doing this very well. I don't think your categories do this or that, you know, I think that your categories are, have misogynist implications or that your categories have racist implications, which is, which is absolutely possible. But to say that in a way that invites further engagement rather than shutting down, that can't just be one person providing all of the generosity, all of the willingness to change. There has to be that real sense of fundamental engagement. And I'm not quite sure how that works, but I do think there is that real resistance sometimes. I think from my point of view, I believe the medical community is on the whole becoming more willing to listen and engage. And I think it does do that better than it did but I, I agree that that interaction with power structures remains a really big issue in that they can be reluctant to change I mean I mean you know medics are people we mostly are in this because we mostly have the same motivations as everybody else which is we mostly care about making the world a better place um it's how you present the blind spots, how you show them uh, and whether or not you begin to offer solutions. Because it's one thing coming up with a broad notion that there is something bad or unjust, but it's also can you help us see the way to doing it better? And it's finding, it's for us, it's finding time for reflection in and around lives that are unbelievably busy. Because if you're about to see 15 or 20 really, really ill people within a space of a limited amount of time, your, your time for reflection within all of those moments is precious and limited. 
And so, I mean, the social determinants of health angles, angles of justice in healthcare, of the profound distributive and discriminatory injustice that many suffer in, in different healthcare models are genuinely important and we're really motivated to overcome them. And, you know, we are motivated to serve our communities better. But how you point that out, how we hear it, if you're talking in a language, you use the word agency, and it took me years to understand what that meant. And that's just because we have these core languages that never meet. And yet the work that we've done together changes things. Your work that you helped lead with Grace Elliott on women's experience of postnatal depression has resulted in a project in our clinical service where we are interviewing women who've had complex um, heart and lung problems and have had to um, have a very medical experience of pregnancy to understand how we can do it better because we've worked on making them safe, but we are worried that we've not always listened to them. And the work that Grace did with you and I taught me that. And then the work that you've helped us lead to examine clinician experience. Uh, I mean, I'd be interested to hear your reflections on on what you think you've learned about clinicians and clinician experience from that, but has resulted in in articles written around around burnout and physician distress and clinician distress and about how we need to create better places for clinicians to understand and mitigate their mistakes and their errors, to talk about their burnout and distress in a way that keeps doctors functioning and within the profession rather than breaking them and driving them away. Um, So I think it can make real change. And for me, that's one of the great joys is that the knowledge is wonderful and interesting, but it also affects real change, which is, of course, the clinician mindset that I, I, I just can't pull out of my brain. There's a small part of my brain that always says, and so? <laughs> and it's very gratifying, actually, to, to know that the thinking and the reflecting and the, and the analysing historically that, that we've been able to do has translated into more open listening practices, I guess you might call them. And I think that that's it's really, really fabulous. But I would never have assumed that that was going to be what was going to happen. And I think making change is so difficult for historians sometimes because you study a particular section of the past and you build up such a rich and detailed picture of that context that it almost seems impossible for any one human being to affect any kind of change because all the social determinants are so detailed and so drawn in and it it, it almost seems like a trap because you you sort of build this more and more detailed picture and and then suddenly change happens and it doesn't happen because one person willed it. It happens because a whole load of other factors just sort of mesh together and something new and, and very complicated comes out of it. And so this idea of change just doesn't have, I think, the same urgency for the content of historians' work. And I think in the maybe in the context of providing healthcare, change is absolutely what you want because people come in sick and you want them to leave well. Change is an absolutely fundamental plank of that work practice. In history, it's not making change, it's explaining change that's already happened. And it's just such a fundamental adaptation, I think, that I've had to, I guess, realise that there can be other demands made of history and historical work that they can fulfil and that that they can fulfil in a robust and evidence way. And that's really been education for me in a way that I absolutely didn't really consider. It strikes me that we're thinking about something which is quite core to what we're trying to explore in these conversation series and and I think there is clear evidence that humanities subjects like history have instrumental value to healthcare but I think also Chris and maybe this is also what you're thinking that there's a real danger then to say oh then the only value that humanities can have must always be instrumentalized and I think sometimes there is instrumental value, but you didn't know going in that there was going to be instrumental value. But it was because there was something fundamentally valuable about studying our history and, and studying the history of our medical and clinical practices. And that by itself should be enough justification. And I think we live in an era where humanities constantly have to justify. And I think part of our justification is indeed we can have instrumental value, but that seems, I think, the danger that then our value, like we are, we don't even exist as like one thing, humanities, but that, that then would become 
instrumentalized to only a very instrumental technical knowledge, which would then probably destroy, to use a strong word, what humanities research was all about. I think you were talking and apologizing about, well, this was a kind of very roundabout way of doing things. But that's exactly often what humanities does. And often what I find that people who come from outside humanities actually very much value that humanities allows that space for that complexity and that nuance and for not reducing something to an easy answer. There's a wonderfully important differentiation there that you made, I think, between having instrumental value and being centred on instrumental value. And, you know, one of the problems with the research excellence framework is that it, it focuses more and more upon stuff like impact and stuff that has measurable change. And it's fine. It's absolutely fine for history to, to aim at measurable change. But as you were saying, you know, the problem emerges when that starts to take over and starts to dominate the more open-ended forms of inquiry that the humanities is sort of built on. And I think actually one of the things that, that I don't recognize very often, because Collaborating with medicine means that I often feel that I struggle to justify my discipline more than, say, Ian's, means that I forget that being a historian of modern Britain and a historian of psychiatry and mental health, I've got a much easier job justifying my existence as a historian of 20th century mental health and self-harm than some of my colleagues who work on the late antique period or ancient Rome or the early modern period, where it's, where it's a much more difficult sell. And so I do think that there is a sort of solidarity reason to, for, for, for people in the humanities to say, well, yes, you know, I'm, I happen to be doing something in its content that is popular or that is easy to, to justify to people, I don't know, in, in sort of research councils. But it's absolutely vital to keep that open endedness and, and that idea that not everything has to have a measurable change within, within three years, within, within five years, because then you lose you lose so much of that. I was going to say value, but of course, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to get away from value. So much of what is important about that approach to human life and human society. And I think we're all interested in knowing more about what, what makes human lives and human society work in the very, very broadest sense. And so much of that is only found through the doing over many years and cannot be reduced to a box on, a, on an impact form. I'm trying to work in some of the really great questions that we've also had just coming through. One of them was commenting about the the importance of words and labels, and I'm going to paraphrase and probably mangle the question for which I apologise to to the person who asked it. But one person is asking what would happen if doctors take the patient as the norm to start from, and to what extent have you engaged with direct patient experience and how do you think power inequities contribute to such research dynamics? So I guess you could say, to what extent does a history of, does a modern history allow you to also find new ways to speak for the patient? Do you feel that that's something that your work has in some way done? Great questions. One of the things my supervisor said about my PhD was that there were no humans in it. It was all about structures and it was all about ideas and it was all about labels and how humans exist within and through these concepts and these labels. And I was really interested in the authoritative knowledge and how that functioned, how authoritative knowledge kind of played out. And that left very little space for patient experience, and not because I wanted to be disparaging about it and not because I wanted to ignore it. But the questions I was asking did not take me to patient experience. And I think I, I, I would be very, very careful about speaking for anyone and, and about kind of ventriloquizing any sort of patient experience, because I don't think it's possible to do in a robust way. I mean, even if I went out and did interviews, I would still be taking what somebody had said and editing and cutting it up and, and putting it into my scheme, putting it into my ideas. And I think that there's a big difference between you know, taking people's experiences seriously. But one of the things about experience is that it's individual to the person. It's not something that can be generalized, sort of almost by definition of the, of the concept. Somebody's personal experience is theirs. And it's absolutely not okay to invalidate that in, in, in sort of any way. And so it then becomes very difficult to use it 
in a sensitive way that also is a robust way that helps move your argument on because you're 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 instrumentalizing it you're taking somebody's experience and making it evidence for a point that you're making which takes it out of its context and so i've always been very wary and some some of my colleagues actually have dealt very well with questions of experience and questions of patient voice and is it even possible to recover the patient's voice or the patient's view in the history of medicine and i've dealt with that by trying to ask different questions. I feel like the experiences of patients, especially in history when the patients are no longer with us and actually haven't left documentation of any sort, I just think it's so difficult to talk in a in a sensitive and robust way about patient experience. And I think I'm more interested in what ideas of experience I use to do. So, so it's, you know, what, what does it mean, for example, that in universities we have a student experience manager? What's experience doing there? Why is it why is it the experience of the student that we need to talk about? What is what is this term experience doing? And actually, one of the things um, I've written fairly recently is about the idea of people using personal experiences in historical writing. Why people draw upon their experiences, and what does it mean when we call something an experience? I was just wanted to comment because I thought it resonated very uh, clearly with the with the question that came in. I do think there is a, a place for first person patient researchers, researchers who have experience as patients. Oh, yeah, sure. And 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 I think in 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 the history of psychiatry, it's incredibly well developed in some ways. You know, we have people who are experts by experience, who are involved in sort of planning and management of care. People who have experience under certain diagnoses, they have formal positions within planning structures to relay that experience. Now, there are of course other problems with that too. People have to sort of perform a certain kind of experience in order to be listened to, and I find that saying, for example, you know, this is my experience. That's a, that's actually quite a political act. It's saying you can't touch this. When you say, well, no, hang on, no, hang on. This, is, this is my experience. It's saying this has value in and of itself and that this is something that should not be distrusted or picked apart. And I think one of the things that history does is to not take things at face value and to pick them apart. And so I think it's so difficult. It's so difficult to deal with experiences in history. And it's, and it, it's absolutely possible but it requires an an awful lot of time and sensitivity and actually you know filling out ethics forms and really having in-depth quality of conversations with people over potentially long periods of time in order to get that fullness and richness and to not be doing it a disservice and to not be tearing it out of context which is sort of why I've avoided it because I dimly aware of how difficult it is to do it well you say you've avoided it, and yet if we take Grace Elliott's project that you, you co-supervised, and you know, she's a wonderful researcher, but you know you pointed her in the direction of how to do this. She took the words of women writing about their experience of postnatal distress in the 1920s, 30s, 40s and 50s and contextualised them with your insight into the social structures, power structures and change in medical power structures over time. And by doing so, was both able to reveal the profound injustices experienced by women and their courage in overcoming those injustices, and also to show how justice could be made, you know, how there could be more justice in healthcare in the future. In that sense of using an individual's experience and placing it in the context of the system and critiquing the system and using it to shine the light on the things that are uncomfortable and, and show us where the systems are wrong so we can change the system, so we can make the experience better, feels to me to be a very powerful merge of kind of different perspectives simultaneously. And, and I think you do hold those things together in, in your work. I think maybe there's a slight cross-purpose, or at least I'm, I think I'm using experiences in quite a narrow way in the sense of things that one has collected from interviews with people who are known to you and still alive and things that are not necessarily public. I think when somebody has written down and published accounts of what has happened to them, that's a, that's a massively different ethical ballgame where you can take a document and say, and, and, and you can do more with it. And you're right, you can, you can, and Grace did, used it to illuminate injustices and to show how certain things were being ignored and certain sort of language of distress was was obscured but i do think it's very different to take something from published documents which is still experience in in one sense but there is a big difference from from that to going out and sort of asking people interviewing people 
and that's what I sort of fell into. I, 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 I didn't mean to, but I sort of fell into talking about experience as if it was something collected through interviews, which is, as we know, like a massively ethically different kettle of fish and requires many more levels of care and precision. I mean, and I don't know whether that should be the case, but when something has been published and is out there in the public domain, it seems like you're allowed to do more with it. Because I'm sure there would be people in Grace's work, people whose experiences, and they would be uncomfortable with potentially as being used as, a, as an exemplar of injustice because they might not have felt that there was an injustice going on. And of course, if, if somebody is alive and someone is known to you and you're using their words to do that and they read them, that's very different. How do you find working in the interdisciplinary space? Would you recommend to people listening to this podcast to think about doing interdisciplinary research or would you just say, it's so hard, don't even go there because you'll never define your methodology or your outputs or work out where you're going to publish your work or, or work out your impact? Or would you say it's worth the candle? This is a, this is a difficult question because... As somebody on an open-ended contract who is not looking towards the next project in the next one year, two year, three years, there is space to allow things, the time, often years, to develop and for things to get published and for, and, and for work to carry on. And I think our collaboration has really developed over a number of years. And were I on a two-year or one-year short-term contract, the possibility of this collaboration almost wouldn't have happened. And I guess what I would say about people wanting to do interdisciplinary work is be careful because jobs are offered in fields and in disciplines and being intelligible to the people who want to employ you, having an intelligible story to tell within a discipline. Actually, that's really helped me. When I came to Sheffield to do a sort of medical humanities post as it was i had a story to tell that i i was trained in history departments and here i was going to be operating in a history department and they understood then quite easily where i was coming from what my disciplinary assumptions were and had i come from i don't know a phd attached to a med school it would have thrown people because you know you can you can only act according to sort of what you understand and what you know to be a legitimate path through these institutions and i and so i would say interdisciplinarity is wonderful and challenging and tells you so much about your own discipline and its idiosyncrasies as much as as much as the one you're sort of crossing into but I would say have a secure footing in a discipline first and I think Ian you and I both know where we stand you you were securely in medicine I was securely in history and and then we could talk and we could exchange. If you are constantly going around different departments, and, and there are people who make a success of it, and, and, and that's brilliant. But as a recommendation, I would say be very careful if your aim is a job, because there aren't many interdisciplinary jobs going. You don't tend to have jobs between disciplines. And so that's where I would say be careful. But as to the quality and the, and the insight that you get from being able to operate between disciplines i think it's it's absolutely amazing it really is and I, and I and i would say if you can do it in a way that is not going to confuse hiring committees absolutely absolutely go for it that's very valuable chris i think sometimes the label interdisciplinarity is sometimes as, as if oh that's definitely good and definitely strategic and it can definitely be also strategic in a pragmatic sense but it's not necessarily the case and I think sometimes you might feel a bit lost or you know how do I fit in this particular kind of job if you need to go out and look for a job I'm very grateful for you sharing that so I think we're almost at the end so this is typically where we ask the question what are your hopes for the future what would you still hope to achieve in your research and around the topics I know I, I keep throwing these massive questions at you what do I see for the I mean I ho ho hopefully see more collaboration with Ian actually you know I think one of the things that really helps me justify it to my home department is actually in in medicine things get published rather more quickly um, and in rather higher volume than, than they do in history. So it looks from the side of history that I'm being incredibly productive with sort of that, that number of articles. So I would absolutely love to keep going um, with that. But more generally, my hopes, I think it's a really difficult period at the moment in both in sort of the medium sort of term in the, in the last sort of five to 10 years and also, of course, in, in, in the last year that we've had to think about the future, actually. I find it really difficult to think sort of six months 
a, a, a year ahead. But what I would say is that what's, what would drive me on and my hope for the future, and actually hope for interdisciplinary collaboration, is that institutions and places that hire people become as open in practice as they are in principle to interdisciplinarity and to really recognize that somebody's career trajectory might well be confusing, but that is not a negative. To try and get out there the idea that somebody who is doing interdisciplinary work will look slightly odd from the perspective of one discipline and that this should really be celebrated because otherwise you're going to have either people doing their interdisciplinarity only when securely employed and only when privileged enough to do it, which then massively restricts the number of people able to do it. But also it would cause people to actually reflect upon the structure of universities, the structure of higher education, the structure of medicine, the way that these areas of human life are governed in disciplines. And to say, well, there are some good points here, but there are also some pretty negative points. There are some, there are some blind spots. I think that's the, the sort of phrase that we keep coming back to. There are some omissions. There are some things that are obscure. If I could have that one thing, it would be to not have people say when faced with an, inter with an interdisciplinary piece of work, well, what, why didn't you do it my way? which I think so often is one of the responses. Well, hang on, why haven't you done, done it like this? Well, I'm, I'm trying to collaborate. That I think would be, if I could click my fingers, would be the one thing. Why didn't you do it my way? That's a great place to, <laughs> that's a great place to leave this. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Why, that's almost every peer review I ever get. Why didn't you do it my way? I, th I think, Chris, thank you so much for, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you, everybody, for joining in and asking questions. That was our third conversation about arts, humanities and health with Dr Chris Millard from the University of Sheffield. Thank you for listening and we hope you took something from it. Tune in to our next episode with Dr Lauren Barron. Lauren is Clinical Professor, Director of the Medical Humanities Programme and inaugural Michael E. DeBakey, Selma DeBakey and Lois DeBakey Chair for Medical Humanities at Baylor University. Dita and Ian will talk with Lauren about the role of humanities in medical education, focusing especially on the innovative medical humanities program at Baylor University, one of the very first of its kind in the United States. For more details, look us up on Twitter at ConvoArtsHealth, or you can go to our website www.research.kent.ac.uk forward slash medical humanities. This episode of Conversations about Arts, Humanities and Health was produced by me, David Brown. Until next time.